Welcome to Forming the Spirit Within, a teaching ministry of Pastor Brad Riley. Pastor Brad is an associate and teaching pastor at First Church of the Nazarene here in Wichita, Kansas. He is the founder and director of the Merciful Servants of Christ, as well as the author of numerous articles. And now, here's Pastor Brad. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Good morning. Let us begin with our prayer. If you have your prayer cards, let's start with our prayer before the study of Scripture this morning. Pray with me. Illumine our hearts, O Master, lover of all humanity, with the pure light of your divine knowledge. Open the eyes of our hearts that we may understand your gospel teachings. Implant deep within us the fear of your blessed commandments, that through them we may conquer all carnal desires and be transformed to live both thinking and doing the things that are pleasing to you. For you, O Lord, are the light of our souls and bodies, and unto you we give all glory and praise together with our Father, who is from everlasting, and the all-holy, good, and life-creating Spirit, now and ever and unto ages of ages. Amen. Good to be with you this morning. We are going to finish John chapter 14 today, I believe. John chapter 15 leads us into the garden with Jesus. And uh, just 15, 16, and 17, those are some chapters that will take quite a while. They're so deep and so filled with beautiful uh, words and metaphors and meanings that it's going to take us a while to work through on the, on the spirit-filled life. Uh, but before we get there, we have the final words of Jesus to his disciples in the upper room. He's about to leave the upper room and head out for the garden, giving them their last kind of words of teaching, if you will, uh, before the very upsetting things that are about to happen to them. And remember, they began this chapter, uh, John began this chapter of chronicling what happened in the lives of the disciples that night in the upper room with those words, let not your hearts be troubled. Jesus could tell they were hurting. They did not understand his desire to go away. They were not at all understanding that. And they felt that it, it didn't make sense. And so Jesus is trying to help them understand something they cannot understand this side, or that side, I should say, of Pentecost. But he knows they will when the Holy Spirit comes. And you can going to plant those words of comfort to them again this, mor into this morning's passage. But let's... Let's take a look and let's start reading at verse 25 and it'll finish the chapter then through verse 31. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you, but the Counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I go away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I go to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no power over me. But I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go hence. I love the image of those last words. Arise, let us be going. Jesus says, let us, let us go. Uh, those, are, those are words that we all need to hear. I just love that phrase, arise, let us be going. When we've sat down from our Bible study time and our prayer time and our worship time, that's, those are words we always want to hear, arise, rise, let us, let us be going. Let us go out and do the work of the Father. Let us go out and do the work of the kingdom. That's what Jesus was about to do. These were his words of obedience, let us be going to do what we must do. Well, in this passage, I want to center on a couple of themes. I want to center on his de Jesus' departure 
which is imminent from them as he sounds and he tells them. Uh, I want to talk about the gift that he's offering them, and I want to talk about his peace this morning. I want us to look at those three themes from, from this passage of Scripture. I wrote a quote on the board. Um, it might be a new thought to you. It might be something you've never heard before. It's a very ancient quote. It's from a man named St. Athanasius. He's regarded as one of the great saints of the early church fathers. Uh, he wrote a book called In, On the Incarnation. If you've never read it, Google it, pull it up online and read it. It's not all that long, but it's very, very deep. And it's a beautiful, beautiful writing. On the Incarnation, in which Athanasius speaks to the glory and the wonder and the beauty of God becoming flesh on the incarnation. Uh, he was, by the way, uh, the man at uh, the, one of the great bishops at the uh, Council of Nicaea. He was actually not even a, a bishop at that point. He was actually just a deacon. I shouldn't say just, because a deacon is a very beautiful office. But, but if we think of the three offices of deacon, presbyter, and bishop, he was a deacon. Um, and young, but he he uh, came to a place where he actually was the writer who helped put together and craft the Nicene Creed that we know and and uh, pray. That is the definitive statement of what Christianity is. The better called the Nicene Constantinopolitan Creed. Uh, that creed that talks about Jesus being God and man, and that was a that. Council of Nicaea, of course, was to combat the heresy that was going around that Jesus was not God. He was created, but he was the son of God, but was the first created being by God. Those were teachings of Arius, a bishop named Arius. And of course, they threatened to split the whole church and, and the faith. And into that, from his little book on the incarnation, he, this is a quote from his book. God became man so that man might become God. It's an interesting way to phrase things, isn't it? What, what, what do you notice about that quote as you try and look at it and try and discern what maybe Athanasius meant? Anybody notice anything unique about that quote? Or? The smaller G's a bit smaller than the big G. That's correct. You don't hear it when, you, when it's spoken, but when it's written, you see that Athanasius was very careful to say that God, big G, capital G, became man so that man might become God, small g. We don't think of ourselves as becoming God or gods. It sounds to us blasphemous and arrogant in, in a sense. But I want to encourage you to open your mind to this thought of what it means to become like God, small g. We never stop being human, okay? When we make it to heaven, we're, we're glorified humans, okay? But what God wants us to see, and there are other places in the scripture, there are places in the Psalms where this idea of becoming like gods, little gods, uh, with a little g, uh, is very, uh, uh, it's quoted very often, it's spoken of in scripture, not just by Athanasius. And what I want you to hear in that is, is this wonder of what it means for us to grow spiritually, ever growing spiritually, more and more and more, becoming more holy and more holy, or holier. I don't know. Is it right to say more holy? Any English teachers in here? Or can you just say holier? I think holier makes more sense. Sometimes I get my mores and my ers mixed up. It's holier. To become holier and holier as we progress in this world. That's the call. That's the call of the spirit life. The Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 3 calls it the upward call in God. That's the call of sanctification. That we are ever growing in and like Christ. So keep that thought in mind. I just want to throw that wonderful little quote out there as we talk a little more about the scripture. But let's go back to the beginning of our passage today. And let's, let's pull out a few things. Uh, in verse 25, Jesus is saying, um, 
He's giving them the answer. I'm saying these things on purpose right now, he's saying, because I'm still here with you. I really want you to hear this from me, Jesus is saying, because I'm still here with you. But I'm not going to be with you very much longer. Physically, they don't understand that. Um, but he says, but the counselor, now here's that Greek word, the same one we used a couple of weeks ago in the same chapter, parakletos. Parakletos, or English paraclete. Okay, But the paraclete, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things. You can underline the word all. I mean, circle the word all. He will teach you all things. You can uh, circle the word Father will send, or the words Father will send. This is a creedal statement. This is a very, very important statement. Those That council I spoke of in the council of, of uh, Nicaea, the Constantinopolitan Nicene Creed, uh, the Nicene-Constantinopolitan Creed, uh, one of the phrases that became so important about that creed, that creed was actually crafted over two different councils. The first council was Nicaea, the second council of 50 or so years later in 381, first one 325, I think the second one, the Council of Constantinople was in 381, crafted the last portion of it, which was about the Holy Spirit. And in it, and I... I I don't know if I, I've given these cards out to you in the past. I, sometimes, I keep them tucked in all kinds of books and Bibles. And I can't think if I have one tucked in this Bible or this book. As I thumb through it real quick to see if I do. I've, I've kind of given you some cards that have the creed printed on them. Does everybody remember that? Kind of a note card that had the creed printed on them? Does anybody have one with them by any chance? I've given you several cards. I've given you cards of morning prayers and different things. It's at home. It's by your bed. Probably, hopefully, pray it every day. That There's one. That's the really old one that I did. I've done a newer one since that. But this will work. Thank you. Thank you, Judy. On this creed, it says down here, uh, the last, there's three stanzas. It talks about the Father, it talks about the Son, and the creed talks about the Holy Spirit. Well, the original creed in Nicaea was written through the part about the Father and the Son. Let me just read it to you. We believe in one God, or you could say, I believe in one God. Um, it could be read either way. That's the newest one. There you go. Thank you. Mm-hmm. We, we believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made. This is the part of the the council's writing about Jesus being begotten of the Father before eternity, okay, before all the worlds were made. He was begotten, which means he was just from eternity. He was not made as a creation as a part of eternity, okay? So he's eternal. Jesus is eternal. And then it goes on to say, of one in essence, or of one substance with the Father. Christ and the Father are one. One substance, one essence. Why they put it down on paper here. Who, because of us men and because of our salvation, came down from heaven. Okay, so Christ, who is God of the same essence as the Father became man. He came down from heaven, okay, and became man. That's the statement of the incarnation. That's what incarnate means, to take on flesh, okay? And that is that is at that point one of the most holiest thoughts we can have, that God became man. Continues on and says, And he was incarnate from the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary and became man and was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate, suffered and was buried and rose again on the third day according to the scriptures and ascended to heaven and sits on the right hand of the Father and he will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead and of whose kingdom there will be no end. Period. That's where the first creed stopped. Okay, well, over the ensuing decades in that 
fourth century, there was more debate about how should we define the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is God. You know, it just became more and more evident to everybody that they needed to make a definite statement about the Holy Spirit. You can see that this idea of the whole doctrine of the Holy Trinity, you know, we don't find that word in the Bible, the Holy Trinity. Those two words are not in the Bible, but the essence of God as Trinity is all over the scripture from beginning to end. It's the only conclusion we can draw that brings Jesus and the Father as one, and as he's about to say about the Holy Spirit and what we're going to study this morning. So they got together again in a big council in 381, and uh, I sure hope that's the right year, I keep saying it, late 4th century. <laughs> so I don't want to be wrong, but I don't remember dates always so well. And they, they added to the creed. The, the council is all the people, all the bishops of the known world. Okay, these are the leaders of all the churches out there, are invited to come in a council. The emperor invokes the council and calls them together. And then they, they get together and they discuss. It's a big, huge, you know, like a, what, what do we call ours? A general assembly, okay? And it's only in that assembly that they can actually define the belief of the faith. Because they're all together and, they're, and they have to all agree. And, I mean, it doesn't have to be unanimous, but I mean, it has to win the day, Okay. Same way we would in our church. If we're going to make a change to our doctrine or our polity in, in what we teach in the manual of the Church of the Nazarene, it can only be done at General Assembly. Okay? And it has to win the day. It has to be the, the, by a certain majority. So here's what they wrote when they got together. And, meaning I believe, I believe, and in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father, who with the Father and the Son is together worshipped and glorified, who spoke through the prophets, and in one holy, catholic, and apostolic church. We confess one baptism to the remission of sins. We look forward to the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. And they closed out the creed with those words. Yes. The Apostles' Creed, after he was crucified, died, and buried, descended to the dead. Why did they leave it out of this one? The Apostles' Creed is not an official statement of any council or church. No one really knows its origin. Okay? And, but it's fine to pray and say. There's absolutely nothing wrong in it. They, they left the, the part descended to the dead is implied in the fact that he was buried. But there is no doctrinal statement that he descended to, what does it mean that he descended to the dead? Did he descend to Hades? Did he descend to hell? What are these things? They tried not to get into that doctrinally, if you will. The it would have gotten longer and longer, maybe another council, yeah. But it is implied, obviously he died. The point that they were trying to make in that original council was that he died. He was buried, okay? They didn't bury him alive, but he died. Okay. Um, it's a good question, though, because the Apostles' Creed is a little shorter. That's the one we use a lot of times in our baptismal statements. Honestly, the ancient church never used the Apostles' Creed. It was never adopted by any council. Um, I think the Western churches adopted it many ages ago. I mean, not as ancient as this creed, but uh, because it seems shorter and just maybe a little easier. The, the Apostles' Creed is almost the same. <laughs> You're going to tax my memory here because I didn't put it on there. Uh, it's on the blue one that Judy had. She's, I see her looking for it here. I, I, I think I know these things. I pray them in my heart. But, but if I'm going to teach you, let me read it. You listen to the similarity, okay? Um, there are some that say it dates to the year 180 in early baptismal vows, but that cannot be proven. Um, here we go. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, 
the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. Amen. So is that Catholic, Muslim, Israel? That is is ancient Christianity. It's not meant to be. When it says the word Catholic in here, take it not to mean Roman Catholic, like we think of like the St. Mary's Church on the corner or something. It means Catholic in its Greek, the Greek sense, all Christians were Catholics because the word Catholic means universal. Okay, there's a oneness to that word. And it says apostolic, so we believe in, whenever it says we believe in one holy, catholic, and apostolic church, what it's saying is we believe there's one church of Jesus Christ universally. And it's apostolic, meaning it's been handed down from the apostles. There's a continuity of history to the church. It didn't just start in the 18th century or something like that. Um, So what did you hear differently in that creed? It's shorter, it's much shorter. Besides the descended to the dead, did you hear anything different? It's a, there's a lot left out of it. Okay, it doesn't speak about Jesus Christ being begotten, not made, of one in essence with the Father. That was what Nicaea had to really, we're trying to, to struggle with that Arian heresy that Jesus is God. He is the God-man. Okay, He's, it's the ultimate mystery. He is God-made flesh. It also doesn't say things like, um, uh, when it says, I believe in the Holy Spirit, who proceeds from the Father, okay? Who with the Father and the Spirit, is, Son is worshipped and glorified. It doesn't say that. Now, so the, the Nicene Constantinopolitan Creed is a much broader creed, and it is more uh, historically uh, accurate. And it is the one creed that all churches, both East and West, have always used in worship, okay? It's the official part of the ancient service, mass, liturgy, whatever you want to call it, of the ancient churches, both East and West. But, and there's a big but, okay, along the way, the Western church changed the creed without the authority of council. So chances are, if you grew up, like I did, attending a Roman Catholic church or maybe an Episcopal church or a Lutheran church or even a Methodist church, any one of the churches that uses a little more liturgical style and quotes creeds in the, quoted the creed or prayed it in their, I should say prayed it, not quoted it, in their worship service, you probably heard it this way. And I, on this one, I think on this old one I put it that way uh, for teaching purposes. I, yeah, okay. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father, and then in brackets I put, and the Son, in brackets. And you probably learned it that way if you learned it at all. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son is worshipped and glorified. (laughs) He's spoken through the prophets, blah, 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 blah. But that little phrase, and the Son, is not in the original creed. And you might say, oh, Brad, you're splitting hairs. Who cares? Big history <laughs> here that cares. It was never used. It was, a, it, was, it was first inserted into the creed by a very small local council in Spain in the, I think, the year around 589. Okay, so it's in the Western Church in Spain in the late 500s. And they were trying to combat more heresies that talked about Jesus not being really God, okay? And so they were, and not being Trinitarian. And, and so they had all good intentions. But what they did, and without realizing it, was mess with the Trinity, the Godhead, and the origin of the Godhead as oneness. Um, and we, would, we could do a whole class on this, but the reason I'm bringing it up to you this morning, and I don't have time to do it justice, the reason I want to bring it up to you this morning is because the creed was very carefully written. Remember, this was in the late 300s, almost 4th century. The Gospel of John had already been written, and it was well circulated. Okay, Now, they hadn't actually adopted the official New Testament yet. That happened only a few short years after that Constantinople Council. It was a council of Carthage that that actually adopted the first canon of Scripture, the 27 books we call the New Testament. And guess whose list they used for those 27 books we call the New Testament? 
This guy right here, Athanasius, he did a lot. It was a very great thing. It was his list. He's the first guy that really lists all 27 books. And in that Council of Carthage, they said, yeah, this is the 27 books. Because there were lots of other books. That it was obvious to the, the, the leaders of the church that should not be in the, in the Bible. You know, books like the Gospel of Thomas and the Gospel of Peter and, and these things that were spurious and they weren't even, they weren't ancient. They were written and had all kinds of weird stuff in them and it was very obvious what was good and what wasn't. So, what does it mean that they put that and the sun in there? That's, by the way, those words, thank you very much, Judy, I'll give those back to you. As those words, it, it, in the Latin, which the Western Church prayed in Latin, okay, it's this. I'll write it on the board. In Latin, it, it's the and the sun can be seen in one word, filioque, okay? Fili which means sun, like Philadelphia, you know, this brotherly love type thing. Uh, the phile means the sun, and the quay meaning with. Those are Latin words. But, so, and the sun, filioque. So this is called the filioque controversy. The Western church started inserting its thinking it had the authority to do this, rather than the universal church of East and West together. And by the late 500s, there was a lot of differences appearing in the in the East and the West Church. Um, we are children of the Western world. We are children of the Western Church, whether we want to be or not. So we inherited that filioque. But as I began to study it and learn it in my own heart, in my own faith, I dropped it quickly and said, you know, we, we shouldn't pray it that way. Why? Because listen to John. John says, verse 26, but the counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name. Who sends the Holy Spirit to the world? The Father. Who proceeds from the Father. Who with the Father and the Son is worshipped and glorified. He's triune. The Holy Spirit is God. He's worshipped and glorified. But he proceeds from the Father. Just like the Son proceeds from the Father. Okay? This is part of the mystery of the Trinity. There are, the, myst the real mystery is that there could be an origin with no beginning. <laughs> that's a that's a ultimate dichotomy of thought, or what's the word I'm trying to oxymoronic thought? I don't know what the word is there. You know, both. <laughs> it, it, you will never understand it. Don't lose your faith. Don't lose your mind trying to prove it and figure it out. You can't. But it can be proved because it's the only way to make sense out of Scripture. We're only left to believe it. It's really or, or else Christ is a liar. Because he says over and over, I and the Father are one. It, it's hard to comprehend. It's why my cousin won't believe. It's why your cousin won't. Wow. So we're going to find, we're, we want him to read this book on the incarnation. He talks about it so much. This would be a great book for your cousin to read. Really good book for him to read. So we're going to pray for her cousin that God will ultimately reveal to himself, himself to him. So, you know, this argument, and most people uh, go through the creed, they say it, most people don't even know it exists. Most Western Christians have no idea of the filioque controversy. But the truth is, it's not the original creed with that in there. And it did make a difference in the way they teach about the origin, the origins and the roles of the, the Holy Trinity. The Father sends and begats. In other words, Jesus, it says he was begotten of the Father. Okay. The Holy Spirit is sent by the Father. Now, who requests that the Holy Spirit be sent? Jesus. Jesus, that's right. That's what we're dealing with here. Jesus is trying to calm and assure the hearts of his disciples in this upper room that night because they're so worried about his going away. Things aren't making sense, and he's going to assure them, I'm only going to be with you a little while longer, but I will ask the Father, and he will send you a comforter. That, that word paraclete can mean comforter. It can mean advocate, counselor. There's several English words that encompass that word, paraclete. And he goes on, what's the purpose of, what's the purpose of Jesus sending the Holy Spirit through the Father? What's the purpose of the Holy Spirit? Why, did, why was it so important that Jesus had to go back to the Father 
so that the Holy Spirit could come. Why was that? Because they couldn't figure it out until after Pentecost. But we're after Pentecost. We're supposed to be Pentecostal Christians here, filled with the Spirit. Okay. So that he could teach us and dwell within us. That's right. Think about it. It's the comfort. This is where I want to spin kind of the balance of our time. Jesus is about to say, well, he says directly that he will teach you all things. I'm going to lead you into this idea. His departure had to come or there could never be teaching of all things. There could never be the peace that he's about to talk about. There could never be the comfort that he's about to talk about, that he's trying to convey. Why? Because they, make no mistake, they had that with Jesus. They didn't have an understanding of all things, but they sure had comfort. They loved being with Jesus. But that wasn't the Father's plan. Sin had not been atoned for. Jesus had to die. For Jesus to conquer death, he had to raise from the, be raised from the dead. And for him to reign over all, he had to ascend back to the Father so that the Spirit could come and reign in our hearts. So that we, through faith, might believe and live in a way that teaches others the truth of Christ, the truth of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, some might say, well, why didn't he just stay? Why didn't he just bring the Holy Spirit? And well, that usher in eternity. There you go. Just call it over with, you know. Why didn't he just died on the cross? We're done, you know. Well, then you and I wouldn't have been born. Neither would anybody else in the last 2,000 years. And then, it, it just you see, it wasn't the fullness of time. It was the fullness of time for Jesus to die, but it wasn't the fullness of time for him to return again. And the fulfillment of the word is that Christ would come twice. The first one in the incarnation. The second when he comes in glory, as we just said, the, la- the closing line of, you know, he will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, the closing line of that original part of the creed. So, his, his, let's start first with his teachings, because I don't want to breeze by this too fast. He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I've said to you. Can you imagine all the things Jesus taught his apostles in those three years, day in, day out? I mean, they're not taking notes. They don't have a little recorder like I do here. So you can go back. I mean, can you imagine all that they needed to know that they could not humanly know unless the gift of the Holy Spirit were given to them later? And that's exactly what Jesus promises them. Just wait. And I love how he says it on Ascension Day, standing on the Mount of Olives. Just go wait. Go wait in Jerusalem for the power when it comes. Because when it comes, you're going to remember everything. You're going to be enlightened. And you're going to be the Great Commission. You are going to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. Because now you will understand everything. And, and through those apostolic teachings, all the way down to today, we still are. That's why the faith must be apostolic. Okay? It has to be based on the teachings of the apostles. Look at Acts chapter 2, verse 42. Acts chapter 2, verse 42 tells us that the earliest Christians, this is, this is Acts 2, I mean, Pentecost just happened, right? This is the first birthing of the church. And the church, it tells us what the church does. And I'll, I get in trouble when I quote things from memory sometimes because I don't have perfect, but I'll just turn to it real quickly here. It says, and at, in speaking of them gathering together, it says the apostles were gathered, and this is what they did, four things. And they continued, they meaning the church, okay, the the first church of Jerusalem. Let's call it the first church of Jerusalem, okay. The first church of Jesus Christ in Jerusalem. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. Okay? The apostles, apostrophe S, that's possessive. The doctrine of the twelve apostles. With me? And fellowship, okay, the community of them together, okay. The word there for that fellowship is koinonia, the Greek word koinonia, which means a bond of fellowship that is hallowed and holy and special. Um, and in the breaking of bread, 
Okay, now fellowship, that's breaking a bread in one sense. Okay, that's like potluck, you know, let's all get together and just eat together and have fellowship. But the breaking of bread is to symbolize more than that. It's to symbolize that Eucharistic communion, the Lord's Supper, that they celebrated every time they got together. Okay, the Lord said the breaking of bread. And the fourth is in prayers. That's the essence of the early church, the first church. The doctrine of the apostles. Well, what in the world is the doctrine of the apostles? And how do we know it? I want to be sure we know it. We better know it. Because it's not, we can't just assume it's the doctrine of every church on earth because every church on earth doesn't have the same doctrine, unfortunately. Time has changed a lot of churches. Well, the apostles' doctrine is believed and understood to be what is called apostolic tradition. A-P-O-S-T apostolic 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 tradition and why is apostolic tradition so important to us because we know Jesus just admitted I've told you many things that have never been written down and you're going to remember them all once you have the Holy Spirit so can we trust the things that the apostles taught in the first hundred years after. I mean, some of them lived 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years after Jesus. Wouldn't that be a yes? That is a yes, a definitive yes. Good, good answer. Yes, we can trust the apostolic tradition because it is the teachings of Christ through his Holy Spirit. You with me? And this is where it all began, right? It's where it all began. It's where the church of Jesus Christ began. That's right. Now, don't you wish that they wrote down a book that said, here's all the apostolic tradition you'll ever need. It's right here. Well, it's not actually right there. We would like it to be right there, but it's not. Okay? Because that book that you just held up, the Bible, doesn't really come into being as a complete teaching until 300 years later after what we're talking about. The New Testament's not even written at the time that we're talking about. So if we want to draw all of our doctrine from the New Testament only. But is Jesus born back then? Oh, yeah, yeah. This is after his birth and deaths. But what I'm saying is that those 27 books we call the New Testament mm -hmm. don't exist in Acts chapter 2. Oh, okay. They haven't even been written yet, those 27 books. You know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, 1st, 2nd Corinthians, all those. They haven't even been written yet. Okay. So what are we teaching? What doctrine? It's the doctrine of the apostles who they received from the Holy Spirit. That would be their book. It, and sadly, it's not a book. All we have is tradition. Now, we do have some. We do have some writings. Okay. Let me, let me acquaint you with another uh, word here besides this book on the incarnation. There's another book called the Didache in Greek. D-I-D-A-C-H-E. Didache. Greek. Okay? That book is also in English called, guess what? The Teachings of the Twelve. The Didache is the Teachings of the Twelve. This is, this appears in history in the very early to mid part of the 100s. That would be the second century. Okay, Jesus, 33 AD. Let's say he dies in 33 AD. Church is born in 33 AD. We get to the end of the first century. You know, that's where we believe the Apostle John, who's written our gospel we're studying, dies around somewhere around the turn of that century, writes the book of Revelation. That's maybe his last writing somewhere in there. So we're around the turn of the century. We know that the very first bishops that we have a lot of writings from, people like Ignatius of Antioch uh, and others were actually students or disciples of John himself, the oldest living apostle. You know, and we know from their writings, we're getting, when we hear Ignatius teaching things, we're hearing John taught Ignatius things, you see. That's why Ignatius' writings are so important to the church. And so we, you see how this tradition is forming. This book right here, the Didache, appears in about the mid to early part of the 100s, or what we would call the second century. Okay. The Didache is like a manual. It would describe, now, don't we wish, it's still not an exact replica of everything Jesus said. But it gives fuller explanation. It talks about how we should do 
celebrations like communion or the Eucharist. It talks about how we should baptize people. It talks about all kinds of... It's like a manual for the churches to operate from. Now, if you're thinking, well, how come we don't know that and we haven't been doing it and when the Church of the Nazarene was founded in 1895 or 1908, why didn't we just go back and pick that up and use that? Well, a lot of this stuff was only discovered over time. Okay, it took time for this stuff to be discovered. But you can know this. You can know this, that there has always been the church of Jesus Christ on the face of the earth teaching the faith of the apostles. Always. Maybe sometimes the church has added to it. Okay? Which, honestly, now we've just described the real split between Roman Catholicism and Eastern Orthodox Christianity. The Eastern Orthodox are people on earth that claim to have the most ancient teachings of the twelve. The most ancient form of Christian thought. And they trace themselves all the way back to those teachings. And they're very proud and I think rightfully so to say we haven't changed what we teach in all these centuries. They have... They take only the, the, the great councils of the church. There are seven councils from the year 325 to the year 787. There were seven councils that were universally accepted by all Christians, East and West. And they were called the ecumenical councils. And the only thing Eastern Orthodoxy will accept as doctrine is anything that came out of those councils. That's why they're called the Church of the Seven Councils. On the other hand, the Western Church that we know of as the Roman Catholic Church went on to have more and more councils. They've had many, 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 many councils, even one in our lifetime called Vatican II. And they hold all of their councils to be authoritative because they feel that's they have the authority to do that. And they've added many things to the faith. Doctrines like purgatory. You know, that's just one to bring up. That's, that's held as doctrinal that a good... Catholic must believe, a good Roman Catholic must believe. Okay, So there are, there are things, so you can see why this is important. That why is tradition? So what are we to do with this idea of apostolic tradition? I think we're to trust that in the fullness of time, Christ has always led his church. And all of the Protestant Reformation, all of the Protestant Reformation really in its heart was about, was trying to recover the ancient teachings of the Twelve, trying to get back to the early church as best it could. Because it recognized that Rome, the Roman church, was innovating too many things through the centuries. It just was straying from the original path. And so that's, thus we had a reformation. Now, it would have been nice if the reformers like Martin Luther and John Calvin and all these guys, if they could have just called up the Church of the East, the, the Orthodox in, in Jerusalem or Constantinople and said, hey guys, we realize the Western church has been airing. We want to come back to you and let's all figure this out and teach us how to do that. But that couldn't, that couldn't happen. It actually tried. Martin Luther's followers actually wrote some letters to the ancient Orthodox patriarchs in the East. But, but I mean, things happened slowly in those days. Letters and the language, the world had been divided. East was Latin, and I mean, East was Greek, and West was Latin, and never the twain should meet. The way they thought after 1,500 years of Christianity, they were like two different worlds, and there was no coming together. Martin Luther and his followers, I shouldn't say him, he was already dead, but his followers, when they petitioned some of the Eastern Orthodox churches to say, we, we want to learn this ancient form of Christianity, they already had entrenched within them some doctrinal thoughts that they couldn't agree with. And so there was never this East and West one. And the Eastern Church was more and more, had been living under the Muslim rule for 700 years by then, by the time of the Reformation. So I'm, I'm giving you all that to say there is such a thing as apostolic tradition. We can know it, we can find it, we can believe it, because in it, it will always agree with Scripture. That God did give us Holy Scripture. He did give us the New Testament. The New Testament is authoritative. And holy tradition 
will in some way or form always agree with the revelation of God's word. Because as the Eastern Christian mind says, really, tradition and scripture are one. One's just fleshing out the other. Okay? That's a fascinating take on it. Because in the Western church, in the Roman Catholic church, tradition is separate from the Bible, and both have to be held equal. And Eastern Christianity says, you they're not separate. They're just all one. Just The apostles only taught what later God brought through in the scriptures. So you can look at a little verse like in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 15, and I'm pretty sure about that. Again, it gets a little dangerous when I throw numbers like that out there, but I'll quickly turn to it. I'm pretty sure that's right. And I'm just going to give you this one as a... Uh, Second Thessalonians, although that's not a book I could quickly turn to because it's hard to find. <laughs> Here it is. I think it's Second Thessalonians two fifteen. Let me get there. Almost there. Second Thessalonians two fifteen says this. Therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold to the traditions that we that were, that were taught to you, whether by word or by our letter. How about that? So the Apostle Paul is saying there are traditions that the apostles taught the churches where they went and planted churches, spread the gospel. Sometimes they were in letter form. Sometimes they were just in their words. Okay. But he's saying hold fast to them. If Ignatius or somebody along the way ever, he's, it's, he wasn't alive at the time of Ignatius, but I'm saying when Ignatius and people like that came along, they could trust their words because they were just passing on what the apostles had taught them. So, the New Testament, while it is authoritative for us, it is not thought to be the sum total of everything Jesus ever had to say. Okay. In fact, the Gospel of John is going to tell us at the very end of the book, the world couldn't contain everything that Jesus had to say. So, but it does contain what we need to be necessary for salvation. You with me? There's no hidden doctrine waiting to be discovered somewhere. There's no hidden truth somewhere that, oh, we need that in order to be saved. The gospel is full. The gospel is complete. Okay? In the New Testament. But... We should learn from these apostolic traditions in the sense that they are, they're beautiful. And there are things for us to learn. Now, I say all that to say, if I'm going to get through gift and peace, i got a long ways to go in about ten minutes, don't I? <laughs> Giving you too much history, not enough Bible. Okay. In verse 27, Jesus says, peace that I give to you. Peace I give to you. Not as the world gives, do I give. Well, let's think about that word right there. First of all, peace is the gift. That, the gift we call the gift of the Holy Spirit, of course. That's the gift that they're going to receive on Pentecost. But the real gift of Jesus Christ is even encompassed in a greater thought. It's the gift of peace. What does peace mean? Let's think about that for just a moment together. What does peace mean? Serenity. Okay, let's just list some words. That might, serenity. Contentility. What'd you say? Contentment. Contentment. Tranquility. Tranquility. Peace with God and with your own conscience. With God and your own, okay. And, sure, peace with God. And, at rest, there's a good word. Okay, see where we're going with it? Okay, this word, I put the Greek word on the board. Okay, Irene. That's how it's pronounced, I think. Irene. Irene. That is the word used right here. And Jesus says, my peace I give to you. So we go back to this word and we find what it means in the Greek language. And in the Greek language, at the root of it, you can see it here is uh, Ira. Ira. Okay, the O is pronounced ah. Ira. Okay. And that word means... Oneness. Ira means oneness. So the idea of peace 
This piece, and this Irene means whole and complete uh, rest. A rest that is whole and complete, based in a oneness. What is Jesus saying? My peace is not like the world. See, the world can try and give us tranquility and the world can give us, you know, we call it peace when two warring countries sign an agreement and they stop fighting, right? We call that peace. Everybody's looking for peace in the world. Give peace a chance, John Lennon said as he wrote his song, you know, give peace a chance. Well, what peace? You want the world's peace or you want Jesus' peace? Because the world's peace is just a stopping of hostilities. But it doesn't necessarily mean we love each other. You see? The world's peace doesn't necessarily mean love your brother as your neighbor as yourself. But Jesus' peace does. Jesus brings us into oneness with the Father. How? How does Jesus give us that peace of oneness with the Father? He gives it to us through... The gift of the Holy Spirit. The gift of the Holy Spirit. What does the gift of the Holy Spirit really do? People talk about, oh, it gives us the gift of tongues. That's what our charismatic friends say. Or it gives, us, like, it gives us this thing of entire sanctification. But it's so much more than that. Yes? It's kind of like unspoken. It's like a feeling. Okay. It's hard to describe. Yeah, it is hard to describe. You're right. Let me give you what... I want to give you the writings of one of the ancient church fathers that I really love. His name is Basil the Great. St. Basil the Great. He was the patriarch of Constantinople, the head bishop of the church, basically, in the 4th century, one of the many in the 4th century. This is a little long, but I think it'll take us where we want to go in the balance of this scripture, okay? So, as you hear the balance of what we read, and this may take us over our time, so I'm going to you know, the balance of the scripture that we talked about, I'll just pick up on when we start chapter 15 when we get together. Jesus talks about that, that you know, he's not going to be with them much longer. He's not going to talk to them much longer because the ruler of this world, and I believe he means Satan there, the ruler of this world is coming, but he has no power over Jesus. Um, Jesus lays down his life willingly. That's what he's trying to communicate there. But let's think about the peace, the gift of the Holy Spirit. Here's the words of Basil the Great. He uses some really good analogies here. Now, no analogy is ever perfect, but it helps our human minds to try and think, okay? Listen to this. The Spirit, meaning the Holy Spirit, okay? The Holy Spirit is simple in being. His powers are many. They are entirely present everywhere and in everything. He is distributed, but he does not change. He is shared, but yet he remains whole. Consider the analogy of the sunbeam. I love this. The sunbeam, okay? Each person on whom its kindly light falls rejoices as if the sun existed for him alone. Yet it illuminates all of the land and all of the sea, and it is master of the atmosphere. In the same way, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, is given to each one who receives him as if he were the possession of that person alone. Yet he sends forth sufficient grace to fill the entire universe. Everything that partakes of his grace is filled with joy according to its capacity, the capacity of its nature, not of its power. The Spirit does not take up his abode in someone's life through a physical approach. Now, this is really important. How does the Spirit come to us, Basil is saying? The, Spirit, the Holy Spirit does not take up his abode, or that means to live within, in someone's life through a physical approach. How could a corporal being, that's what we are, you know, body beings, how could a corporal being approach the bodiless one? The Spirit is bodiless. Instead, the Holy Spirit comes to us when we withdraw ourselves from evil passions that have crept into the soul through its friendship with the flesh, alienating us from a close relationship with God. Only when a person has been cleansed from the shame of his evil and has returned to his natural beauty 
and only when the original form of that royal image has been restored in him is it possible for him to approach the holy paraclete. Then, like the Son, he will show you in himself the image of the invisible. He will show you in himself the image of the invisible with the purified eyes you will see in this blessed image the unspeakable beauty of its prototype. Through him our hearts are lifted up. The infirm are held by the hand. And those who progress are brought to perfection. He shines on those who are cleansed from every spot and makes them spiritual people through fellowship with himself. When a sunbeam falls on a transparent substance, the substance itself becomes brilliant and radiates light from itself. I wrote in my note here, glass. When sunlight falls on glass, what does it do? And even pure glass, it reflects. It makes it brilliant, doesn't it? It reflects the beauty that comes from that sunlight. Okay. So too, spirit-bearing souls, Holy Spirit-bearing souls, illumined by Him, finally become spiritual themselves, and their grace is then sent forth to others. From this comes knowledge of the future, understanding of the mysteries, apprehension of hidden things, distribution of wonderful gifts, heavenly citizenship, a place in the choir of the angels, endless joy in the presence of God, becoming like God, and the highest of all desires, becoming God. This was St. Basil. That's a long passage, but I had to read it to you because it says so much. It says so much. And let me highlight just one thing in our closing here this morning. He says, only when a person has been cleansed from the shame of his evil and has returned to his natural beauty is it possible for him to approach the Holy Spirit. What is that? Why do we say that the work of the Holy Spirit is a second work of grace? Because we must have that initial forgiveness. And it's in that repentance that we are withdrawing ourselves, in Basil's words, only when a person withdraws themselves from the evil passions that have crept into the flesh. That's sin, right? Only when we withdraw ourselves from sin, and that is repentance in Christ forgives, sheds his blood for us, then we may approach the Holy Spirit. But we only may approach him in surrender. Okay, We can never gain the Holy Spirit unless we're willing to give up ourselves. You with me? This teaches us about the concept of total surrender. Surrender to God so that he can he cannot possess what is not surrendered to him. I have so much more here in my notes, but I'm out of time. Um I know this is deep stuff. You you may be scratching your head saying, "Why am I going to Bible study listening to some guy named St. Basil in the fourth century because it's deep it's true these are the guys that really spent their lives devouring the writings of the apostles the writings of scripture and they have so much to teach us so um, thank you for listening thank you for being here um, do a little homework on your own if you want to go read some of these documents like the incarnate on the incarnation and didache they're not that hard to read they've been translated into english and they're not that long I think you might be surprised as you read them. Uh, some beautiful, beautiful things that you learn. Well, um, next week we will. Next week I will be gone. It's spring break, um, but hey, that gives you time to read some of these other documents, right? So we'll get back together then the following week, and we'll start chapter fifteen. I'll re. I'll kind of recapsize what we just recapitulate some of the things we just went over kind of quickly. The closing words of Jesus, remember, arise, let us be going. Arise, let us, be, let us go from this place in the beauty of holiness, in the beauty of his spirit, having had time with him this morning and radiate the light of the Holy Spirit. Let us pray. Father, our Father, let us be seen as reflections of the beauty of your Holy Spirit within. 
Let us withdraw from the sinfulness of our humanly passions. And let us progress and move ever closer to you. That's why we're here to study. Thank you for this time together. We ask your blessing now in the strong name of Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord and Savior, who lives with you, Father, and the Holy Spirit as one God forever and ever and unto the ages of ages. Amen. This has been Forming the Spirit Within. I'm Roger Culver, inviting you to tune in next time as Pastor Brad opens God's Word, helping us to form the Holy Spirit within us. Until then, may grace and peace be with you.